0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator ten for ten percent off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sting one two three four five
1: six seven eight nine ten. Your name is very difficult to pronounce, Peggy Guggenheim. Do you ever stumble on it? <laughs> <laughs> that's five G's in it. No, it has only four.
2: No two.
1: Two and Peggy. Peggy Oh, three, yes, of course, because the first one, (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that uh, great artists are great people, necessarily?
2: They're certainly much more interesting than business people.
3: The Guggenheims were one of those rich, glamorous American families, more like an institution. They made their fortune in the mining industry in the late 1800s. But there was one member of the family who wanted nothing to do with it. Peggy Guggenheim said, "'My childhood was excessively unhappy. I have no pleasant memories of any kind.'" She felt like she was ugly. She was lonely, growing up very rich with a lot of expectations for how a woman was supposed to live, expectations that didn't make sense to her and never did. Eventually, she found Venice, There's no normal life in Venice, she said. Here, everything and everyone floats. This is Peggy Guggenheim's grave. It says, here rests Peggy Guggenheim, 1898 to 1979. And then right next to it is another plaque that says, here lie my beloved babies, cappuccino, Pagin, Peacock, Toro, Madame Butterfly, Baby, Emily, White Angel, Sir Herbert, Sable, Gypsy, Hong Kong, Salida.
4: I think, well, those are her dogs. I think she, she, she quickly became the so-called black sheep of the family. This is her
3: granddaughter, Carol Vale, who, like her grandmother, has made her
4: life here in Venice. I remember going around in her gondola with her gondolier uh, and his striped shirt. And but what it wasn't just going around the canals in Venice. It was, I mean, she would sometimes make me stop at a church and then go and look at paintings. Um, and then I would have to go and look at the paintings, and then I would have to come back and report. I mean, she wasn't your usual grandmother, whatever usual means. Um, <laughs> but she was a little, she was a little daunting. Peggy Guggenheim is known
3: for a lot of things. She's known as a champion of 20th century art, accumulating one of the greatest collections there is, and launching the careers of people like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. And she's known for being eccentric. As a reporter once said, even her sunglasses make news. In her memoirs, she writes a lot about her sex life, She had a lot of sex, and she had a lot of sex with famous people. When someone once asked her how many husbands she'd had, she replied, Do you mean my own or other people's? She's funny. But when she writes about Venice, it's different. Her tone changes. The cleverness seems to fall away. She writes, To live in Venice, or even to visit it, means that you fall in love with the city itself. There's nothing left over in your heart for anyone else. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Peggy Guggenheim's father, Benjamin Guggenheim, died on the Titanic. He'd been booked on another ship, but at the last minute bought a ticket for the maiden voyage of this fancy new boat. He and his assistant were woken up by an iceberg. Because they were first class, they were guaranteed a seat on the lifeboat. But when they reached the deck and saw that women and children were being left behind, Benjamin Guggenheim gave up his seat. He walked back to his room and put on his tuxedo. He was heard saying he wanted to die as a gentleman. A survivor later came to the Guggenheim family
4: to tell them this story. Peggy was 13. But I think she always she, she always missed him immensely, understandably. Uh, and in fact, she writes in her autobiography that she was probably always looking for a father figure.
3: When she was 22, Peggy Guggenheim traveled to Cincinnati. She'd heard you could pay doctors to make you look better and got one of the first nose jobs in the country. The doctor had a row of plaster models of noses, and you just picked the one you wanted off the shelf. Something went wrong. She had the doctor stop halfway through. Afterwards, she said her nose swelled every time it rained. She got a job in a radical bookstore near Grand Central Station. Her mother didn't understand why she was working. Her rich aunts would come in and buy books by the yard to fill their bookshelves. They didn't seem to care what the books were. They just wanted to be certain they bought enough to fill the whole shelf. They brought a tape measure just to make sure. She didn't want to be a New York City socialite. She wanted to be friends with artists. She met a man named Lawrence Vale, the first man I knew who never wore a hat, she said. She describes him as a wild creature. When Lawrence Vale suggested they might go to his hotel room sometime, Peggy says she immediately stood up and put on her hat. That's how I lost my virginity, she writes. It was as simple as that. I soon found myself married, she writes, and felt extremely let down. Now that I had achieved what I thought so desirable, I no longer valued it so much. Lawrence Vale and Peggy Guggenheim had two children, Sinbad and Beguine. But the marriage wasn't happy, and they divorced. I've always found husbands much more satisfactory after marriage than during, she says. She then fell in love with the writer Samuel Beckett, and he encouraged her to think about art and what money can do for artists in new ways. Here she is speaking in 1969.
2: Well, I never, I I didn't know anything about contemporary art, but I knew a lot about uh, all other art. And he said, one should be interested in art of one's time. And made me think it was of a moral duty.
1: Oh, so was it, uh, was it, um, did it have the stigma of a moral duty? I mean, was it a bit of a chore at first? No. No, it was very
2: difficult at first, but it wasn't a chore. It was always fascinating.
3: Beckett encouraged her to see art as a living thing, to focus on today and tomorrow, right now, when we could. She began to use her inheritance to buy works of art from up-and-coming modern artists. Here's her
4: granddaughter, Carol Vale. Uh, she, she was literally armed with a checklist of names of artists, all living artists, and she diligently went um, to studios and galleries, but mostly to studios, artists, um, um, to to start purchasing for her for her collection of modern art. Something which she did um, uh, very vigorously uh, in Paris around 1939-1940, which were the heydays in many ways of Peggy's of Peggy's collecting.
1: Were you an impulsive buyer, or were you
2: very yes, uh, I was, calculating? I was an impulsive buyer,
4: often much too
2: much, so. But surely your, your impulse must have served you well at that time as well. Both, both for good and for bad, yes. <laughs>
3: yes. She writes, Having plenty of time and all the museum funds at my disposal, I put myself on a regimen to buy a picture a day. When she went to Picasso's studio, he told her, She must be in the wrong place. Madam, he said, you'll find the lingerie department on the second floor. Support for This Is Love comes from Indeed. Hiring someone new can sometimes feel like finding a missing puzzle piece. The right person can complete a team, but the search can take a long time. And sometimes it feels entirely up to chance. Indeed is designed to help you find that perfect match much easier and much faster. Indeed's matching engine learns from your preferences for job candidates and becomes more accurate over time. That means the more you use it, the better it gets. You also don't need to worry about the busy work of hiring. Indeed will help you with scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash thisislove. Just go to indeed.com slash thisislove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash thisislove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Peggy Guggenheim was living in Paris, buying art from young people who had become some of the most famous artists in the world. When the Nazis invaded France, she worried about her paintings. A friend suggested she ask the Louvre to hide her collection in their vault, but they declined. They said what she'd collected wasn't worth it.
1: The Louvre changed their mind and said they weren't they worth saving. And the Louvre was sure that Mondrian wasn't worth saving and Picasso wasn't worth saving. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) How extraordinary. I bet they're sorry now.
2: Well, the things are saved anyhow in spite of them, so it doesn't really matter, does it?
1: No, it certainly Mm. doesn't, and I think that that their saving must have taken some doing, though. How did you get them over to the United States?
2: First of all, I had to get them out of Paris before the Germans came, and all these pictures were supposed to be degenerate art, according to Mr. Hitler. And I, I wouldn't leave until I got the pictures out. But finally, a very lucky man arranged the whole thing for me and, and sent, the, sent the whole thing to New York uh, as uh, household objects. We had to send sheets and blankets and uh, casseroles and an old car I had. And it was all shipped off and got to America, got to New York. Quite,
1: right quite there average. in the middle of the war with right the there. submarines yeah, and everything. Incredible, so.
3: She followed her art back to New York, hiring a Pan Am Clipper airplane to take her, her children, and her new boyfriend, the artist Max Ernst, to the United States. In New York, she opened a gallery called Art of the Century, where she showed the work of Salvador Dali, Frida Kahlo, William de Kooning, Mark Rothko, Robert Motherwell, Leonora Carrington.
1: I started it all up. You started it all
2: <laughs> up
3: and, and
1: you found Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko and... and De Kooning never had a uh, an exhibit, or Clifford no, Still? yes, they did.
2: Clifford yeah. Still had an exhibit.
1: Never before you, though? Oh, no, no.
2: These are all
4: first exhibits. I think she understood immediately that it was her duty to help young artists, and it was her duty to help them along with their careers, put on exhibitions. Um, and more often than not, these were not successful commercial ventures, so she would often... Buy a work or two from the artist in order not to disappoint the artist. She had a show entirely of women artists, something no
3: one else was doing. Georgia O'Keeffe declined the invitation because, she said, she didn't want to be categorized as a woman painter. Time magazine refused to cover the exhibition because the art critic felt there were no important women artists. Salvador Dali's wife, gala suggested to peggy that she settle down
1: now what did she mean well,
3: she and you think I she's right
2: have had the way she did she i should have had one person in my life whom i just looked after and whose interests i furthered and you know i suppose she some the well, way she did for fidelity she thought i should have had a husband or a lover or somebody who whom i concentrated on mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: but uh, you did didn't you well, I n- no, not, never exclusively. I never gave never gave up collecting and running my gallery and looking after artists. Uh, when I was ma- married to Max Ernst, even I continued. Probably wasn't, probably didn't help the marriage very much, but I continued nevertheless. <laughs> but do you think that you, you have sacrificed anything to art? Yes, I've given up all my life to it perhaps, since I began, but I think I got a lot out of it. Yes. I was well rewarded.
1: Indeed, it, it, it wasn't really a sacrifice at all.
2: Yes. It's a lot of, it's great, in a way, it's a great sacrifice and worry. And uh, I, mean, it's, I had to put an awful lot of work into it, an awful lot of worry, an awful lot of responsibility.
3: Do you think collecting this work was a form of
5: companionship for her? I, it was a mission. It was a mission. It was her work.
3: This is Francine Prose. She wrote a biography of Peggy Guggenheim called The Shock of the Modern.
5: She didn't want the life that her family imagined for her. She didn't want to be, you know, a society matron, having teas and having to, like, you kind know, of china and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so she became a dealer and a collector, and, and that was her work, and that was her life, and that was her mission. In
3: 1948, she took some of her favorite works to Venice to exhibit at the Venice Biennale. It was the first time Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko had been shown outside of the United States. She fell in love with Venice. She called it her dream city. And shortly after, she packed it all up and moved
5: there. I think she was more at peace to her than, than she'd been. I think even though Art of the Century, her gallery, was so... Success wasn't quite the word. I mean, so formative and so influential and so important. She had ex- unhappy experiences there. I mean, her marriage to Max Ernst was a disaster, and and I think when she went to Venice, she could kind of reinvent herself and just. I think she knew it was some place that she could be happy. Also, I think it was a kind of a dream of hers to own a palazzo.
4: But Peggy didn't want uh, a palazzo which was overly decorated. Uh, she needed something relatively plain, uh, clean white lines. And she came across Palazzo Venere de Leone, which had been inhabited by uh, some extraordinary women before her, by the Marchesa Maria Luisa Casati at the beginning of the 20th century, but then by an English uh, countess. Um, and then uh, for a few years it had been virtually abandoned. But when Peggy saw it, she saw this one-story white building but which was covered in ivy. And I think she thought that these pure, relatively pure white lines were perfect for her collection of modern art. There was a lot of work to be done to the Palazzo, I am sure. There were probably remnants of some kind of frescoes, but as the building had never been finished, uh, it was still relatively, relatively plain. It doesn't
5: look like any of the palazzi around it. I mean, it's, uh, it's spare. It looks sort of neo-Grecian. It doesn't have the sort of uh, renaissance, I mean, not baroque look of so, so many of the others. And, and it lent itself kind of naturally as a place to show modern art, which, which might have looked more out of place in, in a more kind of old-fashioned uh, uh, structure.
4: And then she opens her collection, her museum, her home, several times a week to the public in the afternoon, which I think was a fantastic thing to do.
3: Will you describe the sculpture in front of the palazzo on the
5: water there? <laughs> yeah, it's a guy on a horse. And, uh, and, I mean, the legend is, and I'm never quite sure if it's true or not, that that, it has, that the guy has a detachable penis. That she would put on and take off, uh, uh, you know, depending on the occasion. But again, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's an urban legend or not. I mean, I have a feeling it might be, but, but, um, but that's what one hears.
3: Well, the urban legend I heard is that she, she actually had different sizes.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that. Depending on I her mean, mood, never, she you know, changed I the heard size. That when, when she knew there'd be boatloads of church people or nuns coming by, she would put it on just for the occasion.
3: <laughs> she lived across the canal from the head of the local government who said when I see Mrs. Guggenheim sunbathing on the roof I know springtime has come an Italian socialite once told Peggy if only you would throw all those awful pictures in the Grand Canal you'd have the most beautiful house in Venice
5: I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by what she accomplished and how way ahead of her time she was and, and, and the kind of vision she had. And, you know, I mean, I mean, when you go to the collection, you can't not notice what she accomplished. But, but I still think that she's undervalued in life, you know, because she was a woman and because she was so free in certain ways.
3: The Peggy Guggenheim collection was more formally converted into a museum in 1980, the year after she died. Carol Vale is the director, overseeing her grandmother's legacy. After working for 20 years as a curator at the Guggenheim Museum in New York, she came here to the same house that she would spend
4: time in as a child. And she says she loves coming to work in this place. And, I mean, I remember, for example, sleeping in a bedroom um, surrounded by some rather uh, fearsome looking paintings, like surrealist paintings, with some very strange looking figures by Max Ernst, or really quite terrifying for, 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 for a young girl, a teenage girl. And even just spending time in the palazzo, I mean, eating in the dining room surrounded by early Cubist paintings was really something quite quite extraordinary. But
1: it is a much more intimate setting, isn't it, than, than the kind of wide spaces? Yes, that, it's a home. Uh, it's much
2: more a home than a museum.
1: And yet the public does come to your home in, in Venice. Yes, they come twice a week. And what do you do when they're there? I hide on the roof and take a sunbath. I protect myself. You protect yourself. I think that, that there is the sense that Peggy Guggenheim must be mad to buy all these wild paintings, you know. That, that um, I remember people talking about modern art when I was uh, in school as, as being something that only uh, very strange people were interested in. You must have had relatives who said, why are you buying this art?
2: Yes, but those,
1: that none of that made a difference to me.
2: I just went ahead
1: and do what I thought was interesting. Do you, do you uh, choose where your paintings hang in your house? I oh, mean, yes. You, you, you do all the installation. I have to, yes.
2: I'm my own curator.
3: As Francine Prose notes, in photographs of Peggy here at her palazzo, she seems to get more beautiful as she gets older white hair suits her. Her large earrings, her long, sometimes theatrical, metallic dresses, dogs in her lap, giving a sort of half-smile. Peggy Guggenheim once described herself as a lone wolf. She writes, it took me a long time to liberate myself. love is created by lauren spore and me nadia wilson is our senior producer audio mix by michael rayfield and rob byers julian alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of this is love you can see them at this is love we on facebook and twitter at this is love show This is Love is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Um. Hello? Hello? Yes, is this the Peggy Guggenheim Museum? This is a
5: Peggy
3: Lou yes. Hello, I'm a reporter doing a story on the history of the museum, and I I'm just wondering about the Marini sculpture out front and whether there's any part of it that's detachable.
5: Uh, you mean the Marini Marini on the Grand Canal? Yes. Once, just really many many years ago, when Peggy was alive, there was a part that could be removed, but not now. It's fixed.
3: So, th- so when Peggy was alive, you could remove it?
5: Yeah, but now it's picked, so you cannot remove it anymore. Uh, the man. The part okay. of the... <laughs> yes. <laughs>
3: yes, thank you very much. I think, <laughs> we-
5: But it's stuck
3: on <laughs> there now. It can't be taken off now.
5: No, no, no. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: Radiotopia
1: from PRX.